Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory and on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the show, head on over to Apple Podcast or iTunes and leave a review for the show. Five-star review are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. And speaking of five-star reviews, thank you, Cindy Streb, who says, better every episode, five stars. I've been listening from very early on, and I enjoy listening to the episodes. I hear your passion for Peace Corps stories, and it is improving as you get more experience. Congratulations, and keep up the great work. Thank you. I'm so happy that you guys, or at least one person, is hearing me uh, grow as an interviewer uh, as I continue to do this show. That is uh, very, very important for me uh, that I am getting better at this. For this week's episode, I have two guests on the show, Jennifer Wynn and Christopher Southard, who met while serving in Madagascar. We talk about lemurs, of course, because, well... They served in Madagascar. I could not talk about lemurs, but about their Peace Corps service and how two people serving in the same country at the same time can have very different and similar experiences. So, without further ado, this is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Jennifer Wynn, uh, and my name is Christopher Southard, and this is our Peace Corps story. Hey, Jennifer and Christopher, how are you guys doing? We're great. How are you, Tyler? Doing all right. Yeah, doing well. And you guys just got back from a, a little trip, uh, doing some hiking. Uh, and uh, I've been been a bum the past few days, hanging out in my, <laughs> my, my new apartment, trying to get it set up. So different experiences, but we're here now to talk about your Peace Corps experience in Madagascar, where you guys met as volunteers. We've been together... We met three years ago. We've been together about two years now. We've been back in the States for only a year. Yeah. So it's still a little fresh for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mm-hmm. timeline's all long. <laughs> yeah. So I guess let's start from the beginning. For for each of you, uh, you were serving in Madagascar, but what exactly were you doing as Peace Corps volunteers? Well, I sh- I got there about uh, like, uh, eight months before uh, before she did, and I was an education volunteer. Um, and my, my whole, uh, my whole group, my whole stage was, I, I don't know if they call them like cohort, you know, like everyone in Madagascar just called it a stage. Uh, I don't know if everyone calls it that, but we were all, uh, I showed up in a big, big stage of all JK tiers. And, um, that was just, uh, teaching English to uh, about high school level kids was my, my service. Yeah. And mine, um, I was a health volunteer. So I came in um, planning on specializing in maternal and child health, but um, being in my village, I quickly realized that the main um, health concerns were actually related to water sanitation. So I worked a lot in the local health clinic, but the second year was mostly 
just secondary projects that focused on the needs of the community. So a lot of it was the latrine building, um, building water pumps, um, assisting with like a learning center, um, things like national glow camps or uh, food security committee things. Okay. Those were so much more intense than mine. <laughs> <laughs> mine was pretty random. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then for those who are, are listening, uh, the, the I guess the stage versus cohort thing, uh, stage is just French for like trainee group. Uh, yeah, stage, I, I <laughs> guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is, is Madagascar French speaking? It is. Um, they were colonized um, by the French. So you do have uh, French speaking individuals in the major cities, but anywhere in the rural areas, they speak their own dialect. So you have French, you have the official Malagasy dialect, which is Merna, but there's um, in every little uh, tribe, they, they definitely speak their own dialect. And a lot of those, di- those tribes don't actually speak French or the main Malagasy official language. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there'll be a lot of, a lot of things will happen. Like, like in in the uh, I was in the uh, the center uh, region. I was in the the Marina region, and the like standard way hello. It sort of like directly translates to how do you do? I guess would be the direct closest translation. But and like people would understand that if you go to other places. Like if I went to her region, I would say that uh, yeah. Manoana is how you'd say that. But and people would understand it, but they wouldn't recognize it as a as a greeting. It would just be, they, it would be like, how do I what? <laughs> oh, God, that's right. Okay, wait, n- never mind. Start over. <laughs> yeah, the dialects could be quite different. I, f- I find that a lot of the dialects are similar outside of the Malagasy official dialect, yeah. the Marina dialect. Um, that's the one that's most different. So a lot of other tribes can kind of communicate to each other in a way. <clears throat> well, a lot of people don't like to speak that main dialect, too, because there's like a, there's a stigma against the, the Marina. Um, different tribes. And the Marina tribes uh, or tribe was the one that uh, sided with the French during colonization. And so mm-hmm. they ended up prospering um, very, pretty well compared to the other uh, the other tribes. And so there still is kind of a lasting stigma against uh, the Marina people yeah, um, and against that that language. So that would be kind of a thing sometimes where you'd go to a place and um, it, I mean, you want to know the local dialects anyway. But that was just a little added uh kind of push to not you know you know we're already i was already a white guy in this country and so speaking it's like okay well yeah he does speak malagasy but he speaks marina so trying to lean away from that mm-hmm. yeah so you so you guys were in two different communities about how far apart were you from one another oh gosh a um seven hour no not quite because it took me um, if I could catch a Bruce into the city, it took me, it was only three kilometer walk to the road to get on a Bruce and these taxi Bruce's, it took me about eight to 10 hours to get to the capital. And then I would have to sw- switch over to another taxi Bruce station to get to the one to get his site. And from there it was, uh, you'd say it, site, like yeah. three hours to his main road. And then you have to catch another one to get into his site. So, um, I guess that, at a minimum, it could have been like 15 hours, but yeah, it, it was right. never that flawless. It would always be like a like a two day trip or so. Yeah, it would be seven <laughs> capital. Or yeah, so. but yeah, it was so 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 under perfect conditions, you could you could do it in day, but you know, always you're gonna hit something, a wheel's gonna fall off, your engine's gonna blow up, something Absolutely. like that, or the driver just decides that we're not ready to leave yet, 
and yeah. he would, you know, you'll have the, the Bruce will be packed with people and the engine will be running and you'll be waiting. This you'll be waiting. Everyone is waiting. We're just waiting <laughs> for the driver. He hops in, checks the brakes, puts the, puts the, the parking brake down, goes, you know, lurches forward a bit, stops, pulls the brake back up, opens the door and hops out and just leaves. And you just, <laughs> what is, why, why? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was just so, a lot of yeah. waiting. It was just waiting. Yeah, that was about forty-five percent of our peace, our peace corps <laughs> Madagascar experience was just waiting. <laughs> uh, mine as well. And then, yeah. can you can you guys explain a little bit about your communities? Like, what like were you in rural communities? What did I guess village life, if you called it a village, look like for you in Madagascar? Yeah, I feel you have the you have like the standard what I thought Peace Corps was. Yeah, we had, we ended up having very different experiences. I like to call Chris's experience Posh Corps. Everyone liked to call it Posh Corps. Um, <laughs> and you'll hear very shortly why. Yeah. Um, I was on the East Coast of Madagascar. So um, I was in the jungle region um, and it was beautiful. It was very lush. Everyone in my village had the Ravenala tree. So I thought it was, it was amazing because this one tree you would have the bark as the outside of the house, uh, the stems as the inside of the house, or sorry, the hut, and then the leaves as the roof. And so everyone in the village had these standard huts. Um, and I was really fortunate because I had one of the biggest huts, um, probably fit families, like 10 people each. But um, I mean, and truthfully, it's like the size of like, it's smaller than most people's living rooms, I think. But um, people, it, most of the people I'm, in my village lived about eight to 10 people in a one room hut. And um, it was, uh, I was right along a river. Um, and if I biked about three hours south and three hours north, I could hit the beach. But where I was, we were just inland a little bit because um, many cyclones would come in annually and just kind of tear apart the villages on the along the beach. So each year they've been moving in a little bit. So it, it takes a little longer to get out to the beach now. Um, but yeah, my I was out in the jungle and it was beautiful. It was very hot. It was oppressively hot. Um, and we didn't have electricity, water, or really any cell reception. I kind of liked my second year because I just have cell reception to um, like make a call on WhatsApp. Um, but if there was if it was rainy or if there was clouds in the sky or if I didn't hike up to the top of a hill, it didn't exist. Um, but it was still so much better because my first year I had to walk about three and a half kilometers to maybe get cell reception every once in a while. Um, so that was that was a bit about my community. I was in uh, my tribe is called the Betsin Sadaka tribe. And so that was the language that I spoke. All right, Chris, you want to take it away? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I lived in the I lived in uh, in. Um, it was the Atasi region, which is, uh, is in the center. Uh, basically, um, I was almost like in the exact, exact center, uh, of the country. If you look at it, like on a map, um, Ta uh, Antananarivu or just Tana is the capital, big capital, about a million people in that city. Um, and I was, uh, I was three hours away from that. So I was, my village was really rural. Um, it, we were on a 18 kilometer dirt road that was off the main road. So it was very remote. Uh, but I was in a very remote village in the country. So it wasn't, it wasn't crazy for people to see, you know, a, like I'm, I'm, I'm very like Scotch Irish white, you know, 
pale white skin with a bunch of freckles and a red beard. So it like it's I'm the mo- Vaza is the name for foreigner that they have. And that just, you know, that just becomes everybody's secondhand nickname is Vaza. But I was, I'm, I'm the poster child for being a Vaza. And so that was <laughs> that was kind of, and I was my I was my village's first volunteer that they'd ever had. Um, and I think probably I don't think they sent they did or I know they didn't send a volunteer after me. Uh, my my site just didn't they didn't get the paperwork in time. So um, so I think I might just end up being the first last and only <laughs> uh, <laughs> hint, hint of America, which I think is a little terrifying. But uh, it was my everything's mud bricks in in the uh, in the center of the country. It's not huts or anything. It's it's the highlands. So everything it's it's no jungles or anything. It's kind of rolling, just rolling hills with sparse uh, kind of vegetation on it. Uh, a lot of rice fields that you see just rolling over the hills. But everything is these red brick um, houses. Sometimes they're two stories, uh, and and uh, these red metal roofs, uh, which is sucks when it's when it gets really hot because you're just in a you're just in this metal brick box, uh, and when it rains, it is so loud because there are these tin roofs. Um, but I personally, I had probably the most secure and the cushiest house of my of my stage or anybody else in that country. I lucked out and I got a house with uh, uh, on a nunnery, <laughs> and so it was like like full blown Sound of Music, but Malagasy. <laughs> And it was, it was wonderful. I loved it. They had, uh, it, it was, uh, there was a little junior high school, Catholic junior high school. And you'd walk through that campus and then there'd be a fence and then a big building, big, that was big nunnery building. Uh, it was like two stories, had like eight bedrooms in it. And that's where all the nuns, it was like the, it was like the regional center for all these nuns was this little village. Is where they were trained nuns before they sent them out. So it was like a weird little, like nuns would have, like I just had my my pre-service training and then went to the place where the nuns have their pre-service training. <laughs> uh, and there was a little side like guest house that they had in the back that had a flushing toilet. It had, a, it had, it had two sinks. Um, it had a shower. It didn't have any hot water, but that's... That would be asking for too much. The flush toilet was already too much. I'd ask, I'd tell people that I had a toilet and they say, that's amazing. Wait a minute. Does it flush? I say, oh yeah, it flushes. <laughs> wow. So I had that. Which was great. They had two German shepherds that they had taken off the streets. So whenever I was just feeling so lonely or so sad or whatever, I could just go out back and just play with these two dogs that loved it because Malagasy people don't really play with dogs. No, dogs um, are kind of equivalent to like rodents or vermin they would just like in my my region we never saw them because if someone saw a dog they would just harpoon them out like they they just didn't exist anymore so i got so not only was i with these lovely nuns who would sing uh, with each other while they worked uh they they had these two dogs that they just had and so it was great so that was that was definitely one of the the medical uh, officer for our country came in uh did a little site evaluation with me and was looking around and was just blown away. He's a Malagasy man. And he was just blown away that I had this, this sweet gig with these <laughs> nuns. It was great. 
Yeah, it definitely sounds a, a little little poshcore uh, to me. <laughs> yeah, abs- absolutely. It was electricity. I had lights. I mean, it would go off, you know, every other day. I felt I did feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very different experience. Yeah. And then before we get into the, the stories of your Peace Corps service, uh, since you guys did serve in Madagascar and being an animal lover that I am, I have to ask, so lemurs, uh, yes. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about lemurs. Yes. <laughs> um, they, there are some. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, actually. Yeah. Many different types. I remember my very first encounter with a lemur. Um, I was in my baking town, which was uh, a three-hour bike ride south of me. And we were just eating in uh, a little tiny, I guess you could call it restaurant if you want. They call it a hotelies, but it's kind of like your hole in the wall or a little shack. Um, and it's where everyone goes out to eat and they have rice. And one thing, maybe another thing, there's usually 10 things on the menu, but like eight of them or nine of them just aren't <laughs> there. And they probably haven't been there in years. But the thing is, they won't tell you that it's not there. You show up. And, you know, the standard thing will say, okay, just so you guys know, we don't have any more pork and we don't have any more chicken. Like, oh, okay, thank you. But no, you'll see the menu and all the various things on the menu. And you say, okay, well, I'll have the pork. We're out of pork. Well, I'll have the chicken. Out of chicken. Well, how about the beef? No, we're out of beef. Do you have any fish? Mm-hmm. What do you have? We only have beans. <laughs> were you just, well, ho- were you just hoping that I would just pick beans right off the bat? There's like, there's five of us here. Are we all just going to choose? So it's. It's a little adventure at the. <laughs> it is, but that is actually like nationally, not just a, one region. Um, oh, that happens everywhere. Everywhere. Um, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. They're they're called the hotelies, and it's just rice and maybe beans and maybe one other thing. Um, but I was in a hotel and I was having dinner with um, some of uh, my other Peace Corps friends. We all kind of collected in our baking town that night to go get get money <laughs> at the end of the month, and um, a lemur just. Like it was a baby lemur. Don't know where it came from because our region doesn't have so many like down south where I am. But it just jumped into the restaurant, bounced around, knocked everything over. Um, and then people come in from outside like trying to like, like, oh, lemur, like catch the lemur. We're like, I there, it, there's no way like it is moving way too quick. It just created all this chaos, knocked all the stuff off the shelves and off people's tables and then ran out and uh the group of people went after it, but <laughs> that was my very first encounter with the lemur, and I can't even say I had a good look at it at that time. But um, after that, I went up north, and I did a, a few trips into the jungle in the national forest of Madagascar, um, and they're so abundant and they're beautiful, um, and they really don't care much about people. They'll, they'll kind of do their thing, and you can kind of sit by it and they'll just. Yeah. Um, it's really nice. You can get pretty close to them. And a lot of times um, in places where there are so many visitors or if they've been trained to uh, get food like bananas, um, they'll just kind of crawl up on you and just sit on you or wait. But then in other places, they can be really aggressive and they'll try to open your backpack or take things out of your hand. Um, So it definitely varies, but um, it's hard to go to Madagascar without seeing lemurs. Mm -hmm. You'll definitely have have opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, my first, I, I, I saw them just in the, you know, every every volunteer has the, gets the standard eventually in their service. Well, there's a, is a, in Andasi Bay, right? It's Andasi Bay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, that's kind of the, the most touristy place that you can go to. Uh, like, actually, you'll go to a place where they're just, their locals will just feed them so much, uh, 
you know, fruits and, and stuff. And so they just know to come out to this one little area. Yeah, I think that area is called Lemur it's Island. It's called Lemur Island, yeah. yeah. And so they come, uh, and so they just, yeah, they come out and they'll just, they'll just crawl right up on top of you and they bounce from, you know, bounce from your back onto someone else's and, um, and it's, it's really fun. But the, I, I remember the, the coolest thing I remember is when we were on the, the hotel that we were staying at, the kind of these little bungalows that are right up on the edge of the jungle, just a big wall of, of just jungle. And at night you, you're a, injuries are the 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 biggest species of lemur and they're they're the big they're uh white and black and they're big and they have a call that's so loud i think you can hear it for over two miles Ah. is uh and the injury call it's just this long high-pitched sort of uh just sort of wooing sound that they make and i remember that at night it was raining and we were all a bunch of my friends were just hanging out this is our first big trip um without you know without the under the umbrella piece, and I just I just remember all of us just hanging out talking and uh, just hearing these these loud calls from the just the middle of the jungle, and it was really cool. And this was the day before we were going to see lemurs, so that was it was a really cool kind of you know, like introduction. In, yeah, you know, like get ready. All right. Well, well, well. Thank you for sharing your your lemur experiences. They're one one of one of my favorite animals. I always enjoy when I when the zoo uh, has them when I go go visit the zoo. But now yeah. let's get into the actual meat of your service and your experiences. I always like to know one of the the happy stories or just favorite memories, and this necessarily doesn't have to be happy. Just something that you look back on on fondly from your service. So when I when I cue that question up of a favorite Peace Corps memory, what what comes to mind? Um, if you want me to get started, yeah. Okay. Um, I always kind of think of my mother. Um, my <laughs> my lovely mother. She was such a champ, and she decided to come out to Madagascar to see me. Um, and she was also the mother that never wanted me to go because she just couldn't bear to see her daughter in an environment like that, or just that wasn't America. So. Um, I told her I got there and I was so happy. I was, you know, I moved into this wonderful village and a community that loved me. and I got along with, and apparently in her eyes, I painted this amazing picture of Madagascar. And she was like, yeah, I want to come be with you. Like I'll come visit and it'll be great. And so she booked a plane ticket for three weeks. And, uh, I mean, of course it took many, like a, a long time <laughs> to get into the village. And so when she finally arrived, in her mind, it was just panic. Like, I, I can't do this. I can't be here. Look at this hut. How are we supposed to live here? But she also remembered how long it took to actually get out there and that it would be another two days to get back into the city and on a plane to go home. So she was like, okay, well, we're just going to make this work. Um, uh, and so we, of course, have to go into the normal chores of uh, washing dishes and washing clothes. And um, in our area, all of the women go out to the women, men and children go to the river to do any type of cleaning. Um, but the women mostly spend time there because that's their way of like catching up on the day and uh, just talking about news and gossip that comes around. And so um, when I moved out there, I have a well that's not too far from my house. It's only about like a few minutes walk to get to the well and back. But I always went out to the river, even though it was dirtier. It was just a way for me to be with my community and to integrate and so I built a routine of washing my clothes out there. You wash your clothes in the crossing where all the cows cross. So as they're going, they're dropping mud pies and 
people are using the river to use the bathroom, brushing their teeth, they're washing their food, their plates, their clothes. Um, and so it's, it's not very hygienic. And uh, the way that you wash clothes is you take a little bucket of, and you bring it over and you get some river water, you put soap in it, and you just scrub your clothes and then you dunk it back into the river water to get the soap off and you hang it up outside to dry. Um, but just the sun would kind of get rid of any any smells or anything that would give any indication that it was dirty. So I was never bothered by it. But for my mom to see me dunk clothes back into a river where the girl that I'm talking to right next to me is peeing, it was just really uncomfortable for her, um, understandably so. Um, but one of my favorite memories was we were washing our clothes and um, she was dunk. I was washing with soap and then I handed it to her for her to dunk um, to rinse it clean. And as she was dunking, I looked out to her in the middle of the river and she was about to put my shirt down. And then she paused, stuck her head a little closer to the water to examine something. And then she just stormed out of the river over to me. And she was like, we're going back home. I was sure that this is unacceptable. We cannot be washing your clothes in the river like this. We're going to fetch water no matter how many buckets it takes. And we're going to wash your clothes on your porch every single day till you go home. Um, so that was just... Um, my favorite memory is just my mom trying so hard to integrate and try so hard to be a part of the community. But um, when I when I see these things, like if, for me being back in America, it's like, yeah, that is horrifying. Like, why would I do that? But at the time, it was so normal. Um, and I just couldn't stop laughing at that incident. And my village, too, they were all laughing at my mom. Yeah. Just, um, but she very specifically identified it, though, as a a human's journey. Yeah, it was just <laughs> casually floating on top of the river, just moving downstream. So, funny. so from that day on, I, I ended up just washing my clothes at home because <laughs> we built a habit out of it. But I have to say that's one of my favorite memories of Peace Corps. <laughs> a, a, a very iconic Peace Corps memory indeed. Uh, <laughs> and then Chris, uh, how about yourself? What is a favorite Peace Corps memory that you'd like to share with listeners of the podcast? I, I would say it's probably it's probably my favorite Peace Corps story. I don't know if that's my favorite Peace Corps memory, <laughs> uh, but because um, it was a, it, it was slightly traumatizing, I guess. Uh, I uh, so I had I I'd actually uh, lived with my family all the way through um, all all the way up to leaving for Peace Corps. I uh, the college that I went to was just in the next town from. Uh, from where I lived. So just to save money, I just, I just stayed living ho at home and it was great. Uh, but, uh, I still just was oh, still like, you know, yearning for that, you know, like, I can't wait till I get my own place and I can just, I can, it's just, you know, the freedom that you, that, you know, that I won't get. So I was thinking, oh, well, Peace Corps, you know, we'll probably get, it was kind of all that. It all kind of hit at once with that. I left one month after I graduated and had never left the country before. And so I, uh, I got, I got there uh, on my you know, village, um, some, you know, got settled into my nunnery and, uh, and it was great. And so this is, so this is day, this is day three, uh, at, at site after training. So I, you know, I can say hello, goodbye, thank you, sorry, but not very well, <laughs> you know, but that, that's, that's, you know, that's, it's always weird how, how so much of your training leaves when you when you really need it for that first time. And so I, uh, so the way like this little house would work that I lived in was 
uh, you'd open up the, the door and it was kind of this little hallway immediately was the door on the left to my room. And then you'd keep walking a little bit. And then there was another door on the left that went to the, into the little kitchenette that I had. And then there was a space to the right that you'd kind of walk into. And there was a door like around the corner, there was a door that went into the bathroom. It was just a, just a sink and a toilet, um, really con- confined little space. And so, um, the door opened up against the wall and I had my bike, uh, leaning up, you know, Peace Corps gave it big mountain bikes and I had my bike leaning up against the wall, but it was also leaning up against the door. So if I wanted to close that door, I had to move the bike out of the way, but it was okay. Cause I figured, Hey, this is, this is, this is my, my house now. This is my little, my little space. Peace Corps is very clear on telling, on telling us that, you know, yes, you, some of you may be like with me specifically, they were saying, uh, this is, you know, don't feel like you're going to be, uh, you know, pressed into going to church or, uh, you know, whatever, you know, this is your space. So don't worry. And I was like, okay, cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I was going to the bathroom, uh, and just door open cause whatever. And, uh, in, in, uh, one of the things that like when you, it's azafati is a word that's kind of it's the monkey wrench word it means excuse me thank you and no excuse me sorry excuse me sorry and uh please um and so so you kind of use that if you're just you know if you bump into someone or if you are asking some if you're trying to interrupt somebody to ask them a question or if you're walking into someone's house so one of the nuns who i found out later was uh she was 20 years old um she was a really sweet uh woman though but she just you know, yells, you know, Azafadi. And I thought that meant, you know, knocking on the door, you know, I'm going to come in or I, I want to come in. And so I went, Oh, you know, like, sorry, wait, please. Uh, but I didn't know how to say wait. So I was just trying to yell like in English. <laughs> somehow. Just Maybe she'll understand it if I say it louder. Uh, but so, so, but what I also didn't know is that when she, she wasn't saying, can I come in? What she meant was I am coming in. And so she, <laughs> So, so I look out and I lean forward, I lean forward and I grab the, I, but like, I can't, I don't want to step off the toilet. So I'm, so I'm grabbing the back tire of my, of my bike and I don't just want to throw it down. So I try to like roll the bike wheel, kind of manually roll the back tire forward to move the whole bike forward in order to get the, free the door. So I move it, move it, move it as I'm you know, oh, sorry, no, sorry, you know, wait, as I'm trying to push it forward. And I finally got it. I grab onto the door handle and I look up and she's staring and she's, she's right in front of me. And just, she had just turned this corner and she's looking at me and I look up and I'm looking at her and I'm completely naked in, in the midst of a number two. And you're probably beat red, sweating because <laughs> I'm so nervous. And she sees me, and she and she immediately she's oh 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 excuse me excuse me excuse me. Uh, but it's so azafadi azafadi azafadi, and then and then um, just vanishes. And uh, I don't even remember why she was coming in. I don't she think she. I think she just you. wanted to say hi, you know. But uh, and and so then I shut the door. Then it was a really weird introspective moment because then I shut the door really quickly as she leaves. And now I'm sitting in the in this extraordinarily confined space uh, in my little my little toilet room, and it's all dark in there because the power was out. And I just remember thinking, you know, well, this is <laughs> everything I've done in my life has led to this moment. 
and this just happened. But then two days later, um, I had not learned my lesson. <laughs> I was in my kitchen, uh, naked, <laughs> making some food. Uh, cause that was kind of my whole thing. I remember thinking when I was younger, I can't wait. Cause my dad said it once best part about having your own place is you can just walk around naked and it's totally fine. And I remember like, ever since he said that, I was like seven, ever since he said that, I was like, Oh, this is my dad didn't walk around naked, but that was, you know, when you own your own place and you're by yourself. So I just always wanted to be able to do that. So I was like, okay, maybe that was just a fluke, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so I was in the kitchen and then the same exact thing happened where my, uh, it's my uh, provisor, just it principal is basically just French. Um, my boss, essentially, the, the principal, his wife knocked on my door and uh, and I was, you know, it was it was it was a knock, knock, knock that meant, you know, buckle up, I'm coming in. <laughs> and I wasn't ready for that. I was in the kitchen, but I was in the I was in the kitchen and that's on the other side of my room <laughs> from where she is. So she walks in and she walks past my door into the kitchen and I freak out and I just shut the door. You know, I'm not having this happen again. So I just <laughs> shut the door to my kitchen and, but, but now I'm trapped in here. I can't even get out. The, I can't even, there's a window, which in hindsight, it wasn't very smart of me <laughs> being naked in that kitchen anyway, because there's a big window that just faces the outside. Uh, but the windows all have, all have, uh, gate, like metal bars. bars over it too, which is very nice and safe. But if I had to make a quick little getaway, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't, I was, I was, I was trapped and I didn't know the word to say naked. I didn't know. Like I didn't know all I all I didn't even know the word for clothes. I knew the word lamba, which just means cloth. like cloth. It means like blanket or <laughs> or sheets, you know. But it doesn't mean clothes. So I I remember poking my head out and you know saying hello, what and what do you want? And maybe she just want you know maybe she'll leave. And uh, she did not leave. She she kept. You know, well, something's wrong here, and she kept kind of investigating, and I and she speaks a little English, but I just kept trying to tell her, no, I'm not. Uh, see, you say, see, slamba, see, slamba. No, no clothes, but it didn't mean no clothes. It just meant no blankets. I guess is what I'm saying. And and so I, and so I kept trying to peek out, like maybe I'll show a shoulder and have her know that I'm bare. No, maybe a little bit. Like I'm, I need to get into my room. And she went, and finally she goes, oh. Mazava, clear. It's clear. I understand. Yeah. Mazava, Mazava. And then she walks back into, and then so she leaves. And I went, okay, good. And then she immediately pops back up and she's holding one of my blankets. And she had gone into my room, had fetched a blanket, a lamba, <laughs> because that's what I've been asking for. And then up to the door and then holds her arms up with the blanket and, and turns her head away as if to, and she's like, like, it's okay. I, here, here's the blanket, like not just handing the blanket, holding it up and turning her eyes so she doesn't see me as she wraps me in my, <laughs> as she robes me in this, in, in my, in my blanket. And so I just took the blanket from her and then went, <laughs> thank you. And like ushered towards the door and then she left. And then finally I walked, just holding the blanket, walked into my room, <laughs> threw on some clothes and then stepped outside and was what is it? Do you need something? And they said, No, we just thought you might like to go for a walk. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then that was that. Also, actually, I always forget that part of the story. I, she introduced me to my counterpart that day, 
and she thought it would be great if we all went for a walk, got some food, and then sat down at her house and uh, maybe watched some movies, you know, and all of the movies there are just cheap burned CD, uh, DVDs you need to get on the street, which I learned later you can never trust because anything can be burnt on that on that disc. <laughs> and in our case, uh, it was two separate DVDs that just had porn. <laughs> and so I was sitting there with my my boss's wife and my new counterpart, who was also uh, like a try like. <laughs> The, the woman that we try to trying to convince everyone in the village that no, this isn't a thing. We work together, and and but our very first meeting, you know, let's watch a movie, porn. Oh no, oh th this is horrible. And I was I was so that moment was so funny. I was laughing so much. It was it was my provisor's wife. It was it was her turn to be horribly embarrassed. And then she put on a different CD or a different DVD. This one's better. We'll watch this one. I've seen this one. It's better. I don't think she actually saw it because that one was porn. <laughs> and so at that point she went, we're not going to watch a movie. We're just going to talk. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that was the, that was all within like a 72 hour period. And that was, that was the most, uh, that was, that was, that was, that was incredible. That was a great way for basically Madagascar to say, welcome. You have two more years of this. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm guessing you didn't learn your lesson and start wearing clothes in your house? I did after that. <laughs> okay, after that, that's it. After two times in a row, you you, you yeah. learned. You try everything is honestly what a fellow PCV once uh, once told me, actually. Try mm -hmm. everything twice, and uh, I guess that was enough <laughs> for me. So that poor nun, you're the only person she'll ever see. We became great friends. It, it was, uh, she was, uh, she was... Uh, Zoo was her name, Z O, and uh, and oh, I can't remember the other one. There, there were two. There was a, there was her, and then there was a twenty-five-year-old nun, and uh, they were both. Uh, she, Zoo, uh, uh, Zueli, you know, but Zoo. She was so, you know, she was this teeny little girl, about the age of my sister, uh, you know. So it was this, it was really weird, kind of having her be this, this. I think she kind of thought it was weird too, being this kind of teacher. Is cultural teacher to me, you know, like teaching me how to how to wash my clothes, you know, the mm -hmm. proper way to wash clothes, and um, and or or if if my gas stove went out, how to you know make a charcoal fire or something like that. Um, and then the other the other nun that I was really close with is just she had this really cool kind of too cool mentality, which was really interesting to see in a nun, um, but. Uh, it was really fun. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of uh, similarities with us because they were going through their training to become full-fledged nuns to go out to uh, just the places that they were going to live and they were going to do their work. And so it was really cool kind of, I was just fresh out of uh, um, PCT and, or PST. I was just out of that. And uh, they were kind of in something that was just, you know, really similar. And so it was kind of cool just being in this little weird educational realm together, you know, where I would be teaching them little bits of English and they would be teaching me little bits of everything else. <laughs> and then I guess moving on to some of your, your least favorite memories. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so rather than, you know, the, the time, uh, Jennifer, when your, your mother saw the, the human turd floating down the river or Christopher, you being walked in on naked twice in a row and then having, having a, a, lo a lovely evening of, watching porn with your counterpart. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Um, what is uh, a, a least favorite memory of your service? Oh, gosh. Um, I. It's weird that your most favorite memory is like someone else. Like my mother's probably least favorite memory yeah, of that experience. That is great. Um, I, my, one of my least favorite memories, one of my least favorite and like most traumatizing experiences, um, it does make me laugh sometimes when I reflect on it. Um, but I feel like I had this endless battle with um, rats during my time there. <laughs> Um, because the way that our huts were made, um, where the leaves on the roof kind of match the wall, uh, there's a space. And so if it was very windy, like wind would blow in and it would just kind of flutter all your papers around. But it was also just a beautiful space for rats to make themselves at home. If they wanted to come in, they were just walking in and they would bring all of their friends. And it wasn't a matter of like, if you're clean or dirty, that rats would come in. They will eat anything. Bars of soap, sunscreen. Uh, boxes, mattresses, shoes, shoes. Um, the only thing they could not get through was glass or this, um, was it trunk that Peace Corps gave you for your valuables, which truthfully my valuables never went in those. It was all the food that I wanted to eat because I knew if I left it out, the rats mm-hmm. would have it before me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of, uh, I have, uh, it was just the rats would, there was one time that the rat like was on top of my uh, roof and it just peed through and it went through my mosquito net and I woke up to being peed on by a rat. <laughs> I've also had rats like chew through my mosquito net and like crawl into bed with me and I'd wake up to it like snuggling between my legs and I'd freak out and sew up my mosquito net and the next morning or the next night it would chew through another hole and kind of come and cuddle with me. So it was just this endless battle and I uh, I was I never wanted to be a person who had to kill bugs or kill rats, but I can't tell you how many rats I killed in my rat trap. And like my whole yard was just like a, just a graveyard of rats at that point by the end of my service. But one of my least favorite experiences was I had this one rat that I could not seem to catch and I had seen glimpses of it and it wasn't, it was like the size of like a small, I mean, it was huge. It was so thick. She just had a heavy diet of shoes and soap. Yeah. And it would, I would try to like move my rat trap around or like put different foods on it. And it would, it was so sneaky and it would just get the food and run away. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't win this battle. And so one time I was like, okay, well there's, the wall is so small between the wall and the roof. So let me, instead of putting it on the ground, I'm just going to move it up top and um, it'll be fine. And so the way that it works walking to my hut is I have the door and um, it's really it's really dark inside unless I open up all the doors and windows. So I got just really used to this habit of like walking in in the dark and walking around to the other door so I could open up the door and the window. And I was fine walking in the dark because I knew where all my furniture was and the hut's not very big. And so I that day I had broken out of my habit of leaving the rat trap on the floor in this one space and I moved it up top to my wall. And um as I was walking over to it, uh, I stepped down and I felt this really thick, it's like like the thickness of like a water bottle, warm body, because I, everyone's just barefoot in a village. And I stepped on it and I just, I, I just yelped, I screamed and I ran back out and my neighbor saw me. She's like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't think so. I I think I just stepped on something dead. It was, and it's still warm. I don't know if it's dead, but it, I, it was on my foot. And so she came in with me and she, uh, we, we opened a, uh, a window and we kind of walked around the area 
And then we finally saw it. And I mean, it was, it was this massive, massive rat, the biggest one that I had ever seen at that point. And, um, I guess when you're up close, it seems so much bigger too, but, uh, it worked the rat trap on the wall. It blocked its path and it fell all the way from my roof onto the middle of my floor. And it was just freshly dead. And I stepped on it and I was like, I, I don't think I can get rid of this one. I'm still shaken up about it. Can you get rid of it? And she's like, Oh no, that's huge. That's gross. I'm not touching that. And I was like, wait, what? You have to help me. What are you doing? This is like a part of your life too. And she's like, no, nah, no, I can't touch that. And she was like, we can go find someone else. Prep porch until a man walked by and she was like, Hey, Hey, uh, come over here. We need, we need you to do something for us. And so he came in and he came in and looked at the rat. He's like, Ooh, that is a, that's a thick rat. And we're like, yeah, can you get rid of it? And he was just like, yeah, I guess so. And he's like, I'll take it out of the trap, but you're going to, you're going to have to dispose of it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are not allies right now. Um, but yeah, we, uh, he got it out of the trap for us and I grabbed a piece of newspaper and we just walked it out to just this area in the middle of the, the jungle. And we, we laid it to rest there. But I, I just, <laughs> I remember even for her, she was like, I don't even want to touch that one. Like, we're going to have to defer for someone else. And that to me was like a really big sign of how, how bad <laughs> the situation yeah. I gotten. But um, I think, yeah, there was just multiple, like I, I would so much rather rat traps because I tried rat poison and the rats will just hide in a cozy place to die. And you don't know it's dead and you don't know where it is until you smell it. And sometimes if you leave for a week and you come back, you just have like a pile of rat, the decomposing rat and like maggots on your floor. And it was, I just don't miss rats. I, <laughs> that is one, <laughs> one thing I'm so stoked about for being back home that um, I don't have to deal with them being in my space or me having to get rid of them anymore. Um, so yeah, rats definitely go down as the the whole collection of all the stories um the I don't species miss rats. of rats <laughs> my least favorite part about peace corps <laughs> yeah i i had some some rat memories as well but most of mine were actually uh fond oddly enough <laughs> in my time of peace corps but for anybody who is who's listening who is going to be a volunteer or a current volunteer i cannot overstate uh what, what you said about uh the rat poison because the rat will die and it will die in your wall it's it's that's where it's gonna go <laughs> and you're not gonna find it you're just gonna smell it and you're gonna have to live with it so yeah. av- av- avoid the poison avoid the yeah. poison i will also say if you're in a place where rats really are an issue the sticky pads the, the sticky rat traps i don't know if this was uh, an experience you had but i know that my friends i i felt like there was a piece of like it was just a little too unethical for me to let them lay there kind of pad but my friends who couldn't catch the rat they got desperate and they decided to use the sticky pads but the rats were big and there was one friend who set up four sticky rat traps in her house and then she came to my house for the weekend and upon coming back she sent me pictures and in her house the rats were still running around but they were so big and they got stuck on the traps but they just nearly peeled themselves off and just ran away so she had four (laughs) rat traps that were just covered in fur with no rats. Um, and after that, too, I was like, oh, that I will never do that. And you can dispose of that one on your own, too. Oh, my God. Um, you never told me that one. No. Um, yeah. That. So I don't do poison and I don't do sticky traps. But uh, it's hard to win with rats. I think if you can find a way to peacefully cohabitate, do it. But Or get a cat. 
I had some friends that got to, that got cats and they said it worked. Uh, it worked like a charm. But then again, I had a friend that got a cat and uh, it it was horrified of rats. <laughs> it was terrible with a rat. <laughs> so she's like, well, now I just have this cat that I have to take care of now. <laughs> and I still have rats. <laughs> uh, it's hard to win with them. <laughs> yeah. My dogs luckily kept pretty much everything away, which was pretty great because they it's like just having like again, like just having a cat, like just a cat or a dog nearby will keep vermin, you know, away. Which is mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah. And, and and Chris, what about you? Uh, what do you have to follow up with uh, the rat stories and the rat saga? Oh yeah, I know. Just take a deep, take a uh, breather. I still debriefing over that whole experience. <laughs> Kick back. It's over. Um, mine was uh, I um, I, I ended up getting mugged uh, exactly exactly one, one year. Like to the day of arriving in country, um, I hadn't been I hadn't been a volunteer for a year. This is like a year including the first three months. Um, but I, yeah, I remember I was I was it was, I think it was just a Friday or something. I was just heading into the capital for the weekend, um, and um, the, the kept I, I I always forget. Do, uh, did your country have uh, mavas? Do they call them mavas everywhere? Like it, a peace corps house. The volunteer like, state? Yeah, it's like the Peace Corps flop house kind of place. Yeah, we we had one in uh, one village that wasn't the capital, and then our, our capital we had a a house that was actually right next door to um, the main office. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So we had we had three, and one was in the one was really close to where I it, just really close, you know, quote unquote. <laughs> um, the uh, it was in the capital in Tana, and so I was just in Tana and. Tana is also rife with red zones, which, you know, that was a thing kind of to learn about was all of the places that you're, you know, all the red zones that you're not supposed to go to. But then it, you realize it's like, okay, well, you know, be aware and be vigilant. And then you can, you know, go to these places. It's just like, don't wear, don't wear jewelry or don't, don't wear. That. But that was a mentality that I had. And then I, and then I got, you know, I got proven wrong <laughs> because um, I was in, I was in this one area um, it was just a, it was backed up traffic, uh, in, um, on this street and, uh, you know, just one, one road, just one lane, just weaving in through these, uh, through these suburbs. And, uh, I, uh, it was so hot and I had just been in, I, I just wanted this. It, it was, I remember it had, had been like just a nightmare getting to that, just to that point. But I was in the, I was in the city. I was so close. I was maybe an hour out. So I was just waiting, just waiting for us to get through traffic. And then uh, with my window down, I just noticed, you know, kind of zoned out, but just noticed that someone had come up to the window and my taxi driver started just going crazy, screaming, yelling across me uh, in the window. And I look over and it's uh, all of a sudden there's a machete in my face um, and a guy's just brandishing or yeah, this big machete at me. And it was more of like a big, long steak knife, I guess. But he was just brandishing this at me as uh, wearing a hoodie. And then two guys saying, you know, these up. They reach both the, both of them reach both their arms in and they grab my back that's at my feet and they rip it out. And I just instinctively just grab my backpack trying to just don't want them to take it. And they, uh, and then the dude, this must, 
I was kind of confused. It either must have been their first mugging or the first time that anybody had ever resisted in the mugging because the guy with the machete just eyes closed, started just wildly just hacking away with this machete. And but it was very dull, luckily for me. So it kind of it hit me on the arm a few times. I could hear it hitting on the on the on the window, but it was kind of like boom, 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 and then I let go. And then they fell back with the backpack and the three of them just stared at me and I'm staring back at them in the car. And I just instinctively, like, I don't know what I would have done. I, I just opened up the door and I just started running after them and they ran down this alley, you know, ducking left, right, left. And then they were gone. And that's just when I stopped. And I just kind of realized like, I don't really know where I am. If I do catch them. It's still one. It's still me. One person against three people with a with a machete so i was like you know just cut your losses just head back to the just head back to the taxi i got back to the taxi uh, and then i when i sat down i realized just kind of taking inventory of myself um i uh, looked down and i realized that my finger's broken but broken mm-hmm. and uh just fully the 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 first digit like in between the knuckle on my like on my hand and then like the first digit on like knuckle on my finger it was uh just cracked. Like my finger just made like a W, you know, sort of position. And it was, it was the, it's like the, the stereotypical sort of like if you were to draw a broken finger, (laughs) like on a stick figure, it would be that. And so I looked down and I realized like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I guess that happens. And so I just, and so I sat down and the driver was there and the driver was he was, he was free. He had his phone in his hand and he was freaking out. Um, and he, are you okay? God, took off. God, they broke your finger. Oh my God, this is horrible. We have to report this. And I went, no, no, I just, I'll like, I'll report it to Peace Corps, but I just, I just want to go, like, just get me to the Mava. Just get me to the Mava. I can deal with it there. And he's like, no, we, we, are you sure? We really have to report this. And I went, fine, fine, let's go. And that ended up being a huge mistake because that turned into the longest, uh, just bureaucratic, you know, nightmare that we're like waiting in line at the, at the gendarmes office at the the police, uh, waiting there. Uh, and then I remember when I was being, when I was there, there was this, uh, French dude that lived in the area who had li- been living in the country for, uh, for like 20 years. And he was super drunk and he was getting really drunk with some of the police officers that were there. So I walk in and I immediately like, well, this sucks. <laughs> um, I, I mean, they're all drunk and having a great time. And I'm, and then a white person shows up who just got mugged. Um, and then at this point, shock started to kick in and, uh, my Malagasy started getting really wonky, um, because I was also stuttering and I was, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't get words out and, was, and they just took that as, and I didn't know how to speak Malagasy, but it was, no, I do. I'm just freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> um, my phone was also dying. It was in the process of dying. Uh, and I didn't have any money. So I was trying to convince the taxi driver to, I was like, listen, I have, I have this much, I, I had a 10th of what I was supposed to give him because everything else was in my backpack. So, um, he ended up being really cool and just took me back, but it was just this, it was, it was just the, it's like being in a DMV, but it was a DMV in, in Madagascar and everyone was drunk 
and no one wanted to fix your problems and my finger was broken. <laughs> uh, and so I just remember it was fine. This was at four o'clock in the afternoon. I ended up getting, uh, I ended up getting into the, Ma uh, to the Mava at nine o'clock oh. and I got there and then, um, and then I called, had the, the, the med office I had, um, which they didn't answer at first. <laughs> uh, so I, and then so someone else had to come get me and then they took me to get x-rayed a really janky, like this starts off an entire month of where I was living in the capital on per diem, uh, like medical per diem, which was not enough money in the capital to get money or to get food and stuff. So I was just, I was begging from people. I was just asking people if I could have some, you know, someone got a care package and I went, Oh, can I have some of that? <laughs> Cause I haven't eaten in a day. And I ended up having to go to South Africa just because they, they ended up, they, I went to the doctor, I think three different times and they put three different little, little splints on me. One splint was a, uh, the doctor calls out, uh, or calls out for, um, a guy to come help him. The guy that they have to come help him is like the, like the, the, the maintenance guy. He, he's wearing a full, he's wearing a full blue, uh, like coveralls, you know, they're all greasy and dirt stained. I went, what the hell is this guy going to do? And he comes out and he just pulls out of his pocket a long piece of black metal, a thin piece of black metal. And the doctor who was specifically to me, a specialist that they brought in from another hospital, it's probably just like his cousin or something, but they bring this hand specialist looks at this piece of metal and looks down at it and says, perfect. And went, oh, all my problems are solved. Now we have, we have this black piece of metal. It's going to help me. And he, he looked at my finger, looked at my hand, which was still very gnarly looking. Uh, he, I mean, they had straightened it out, but it still had a kink in it. And so he looks at my hand and he puts the metal up on it and then he proceeds to bend the metal in little, little just a little kind of curve and got the right position and then bent it you know back and forth to try to weaken the metal so he could snap it off and could you know make it a shorter it was about a foot long he snapped it off to make it about four inches but in that in the process of bending that metal when it finally snapped the last little last little you know two quarters of an inch of the metal was just bent down it was for you know forcibly in this little, it was a hook. They gave me a hook <laughs> on this. It was a sharp, you know, it was sharp hooked metal and they strapped that onto my, onto my finger, onto my hand. And it was too long. It went past my wrist and it started cutting up against my wrist. So I ended up chafing and like getting a blister on my wrist. And then they just, and then the, and then the other part of it, just, it, it caught on stuff. It caught on everything. Mosquito nets, uh, sheets, clothes, other people, you know, <laughs> door frames. I mean, it, it caught on, it would be, it would be the type of thing too, where I would hand someone something and they would grab onto the, the hook thinking that's what it was. And they would tug on it thinking that I wasn't giving it to them until finally I would yelp or something and they would realize. So that, so it just, it was this whole thing. And finally the doctor just said, listen, you, uh, you have to go to South Africa. <laughs> um, because we can't fix it. So I finally went to South Africa. I was there for 10 days. They put two pins in my finger. I also realized, so I showed up with the hook there, <laughs> and uh, which got through security somehow. And I, uh, so I showed up with the hook, and I remember this really bombastic South African 
doctor. Just look. It was great because he said we can swear on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. He, yeah. So he looks. He looks down at me and he says, "What the fuck is on your hand?" <laughs> I went, "It's a, it's a splint." <laughs> wait, wait. And I, so I had to explain to them Peace Corps, which Peace Corps is in South Africa, but this was in Pretoria, um, and so I don't. I so they were just trying to. They had a vague notion of what Peace Corps was, but. I just remember I was trying to tell them that, that I was in Madagascar and which also it was funny because everyone assumed that I had this happen to me in Pretoria, which wasn't comforting because I was spending the next 10 days there. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, uh, yeah, I remember him just, he, he started listing off all of the different things that were incorrect. The, <laughs> the, the splint one shocker was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way they taped it was wrong. The amount of time they took, like it took for me to get there was wrong. It just, it, it was, it was, it, I, I listed off all of the things that has happened to me and he listed off all of the, every one of those things as being <laughs> something that was done incorrectly. <laughs> so I ended up having to get two pins in my finger and, and go back for, uh, I think for like six weeks, um, in Madagascar with, you know, uh, pins in my finger, can't straighten my finger out and then had to go back to South Africa for 10 days for them to take the pins out. And then I came back, um, and that was, uh, yeah, that was, it ended up happening too, where this happened because my keys were like, I had everything in my backpack. I had so much stuff in my backpack, including my keys. So I couldn't make it back into my house. Um, and I didn't have enough money to take a Bruce back to my village. So this happened right after, uh, all of my students took their big last final and all of their tests were in my room locked. <laughs> <laughs> and so my, so my counterpart had to just, she just came up with a, uh, a test. Like usually we would print out these tests. My, my provisor had a, had a printer. And so we would print out these tests and give it to him, but we would have kind of small, like quizzes that we would write on the board, but because it was on the board, there's only so much that we could fit on it. So they just naturally got an easier final because, uh, just a, uh, <laughs> Mr. Soda got stabbed <laughs> or uh, attacked. So yeah, that that ended up being a uh, that that was again not like it was, it was a horrible like I lost so much stuff, so many like you know just it it was it was like a good lesson to not attach so much sentimental value onto inanimate objects because I had so many things in that backpack that I just I just loved and were lost and it was just tragic. Wow. So, but you know. We endure. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel like my rat story does not. Like, uh, my rat stories are just really personal problems uh, with now. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was it was a it was a solid one year anniversary present by Madagascar. So mm -hmm. kind of. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like you may have been better with just uh, a few popsicle sticks and some duct tape uh, rather than that that hook contraption you had going on. I just done it myself. It was. <laughs> Just awful. Yeah. Just because that, that was, I only had it for about two weeks, but I remember that being a very specific where it just, I had to be so careful. I had to have my hand in my eye, like line of sight constantly because <laughs> it would get caught on a couch cushion or a mug handle. It's incredible though because your hand, like you can't even tell. His hand looks so normal. Mm -hmm. The fingers moving like any other finger. My freckles block the, the little scar. Yeah. The little scar. <laughs> Okay, it's awesome. It works. <laughs> well, that's good to know that maybe you, you know, 
even though you got a few uh, bumps and bruises, uh, you you still managed to come out with all your fingers and toes intact. Yeah, and also it was I mean, it was a it was a great kind of learning experience in the sense of I I mean I never let my guard down. Like I I would go out and I would enjoy myself, but I I was I felt like I was on high alert all the time. I mean that that was the I think that was just the most dangerous, especially in Tana. Like Tana can be fine. It's a, it's a fine city, but it also is, it can be incredibly dangerous, you Mm -hmm. know? And, uh, and that, uh, that was a big kind of wake up call for me, you know, just getting really comfortable and thinking, why is this, why is this place locked? Fine. Whatever. It doesn't mean like, but just because, just because you're not seeing something happen, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen on a, on a daily basis or have the potential to have happen on a daily basis. I mean, people talk to me and I didn't even think about it of like, maybe your taxi driver, you know, texted them and just acted freaked out or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I didn't even think about that. You know, so it's just, it was a, it was a big learning experience for me. And I told people about that. And I feel like that story kind of, it kicked other people into gear too, with, which is good because, you know, no one should have to learn this that lesson the hard way uh mm-hmm. you know so it was uh overall it all it all ended up working out <laughs> and then in in addition to that uh what else did you learn in peace corps what are some of those uh lessons uh, that you 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 learned during your service and that you carried back with you to the united states hmm. well i think i I was really amazed in my village because I think upon um, just like our standards in like the Western world, um, people in my village didn't really have much to be happy about. Like cyclones came and like just destroyed the village like every other year. And the number one killer in my village was diarrhea. And you had just so much, so many malnutrition issues and um, like hunger season was real and all of these things. Um, but everyone was so happy. And I remember noticing that where uh, everyone would wake up and greet you like it was like the best day of their life. And I loved that. And I just loved having conversation with people because it could be all complaints, um, but it usually wasn't. Um, There's hardly any complaining, at least in my area. And so I grew to really love that about my village. I loved just having like genuine conversation. And I loved having, just being able to laugh about anything and everything. Everything was something to laugh about and something to smile about. Um, and so I I felt like I brought that back with me because um, I, I am uh, in the world of psychology. And before I was working a lot with um, like depression or veterans of anxiety, all these things. And I realized that um, even just, the normal person. Um, I feel like a lot of them don't experience the joy that these people experience day to day, even though they're constantly losing people they love and items that they love. And they'll just never be able to like have good health as like a guarantee. Um, and so coming back home, I, I ended up changing, um, the concentration and direction that I wanted in the field of psychology. And I ended up going into graduate school to kind of focus on like well-being and happiness and how can we achieve that and how can you rearrange your psychosocial and like environment to help um to help achieve better like wellness or sorry not wellness but well-being um and so I feel like for me I, I just took away that you you can prioritize things that matter um even even in a world here it's it's hard there's so many things that 
can can bring you down. But um, I I just learned from them that they just don't let it. And um, I think that happiness was just really inspirational and motivation motivational to kind of help people achieve that back here in America. So that's what I'm going to school for now. Um, and that's something that I'm so thankful for Peace Corps to give me experience. That was able to live for as long as he did. Mm-hmm. And, and Christopher, how about yourself? Um, it, it's, it's pretty similar. Uh, I think it was really, it was really cool kind of to, I sort of realized that, uh, people are pretty much the same as anywhere you go. go. I mean, of course there's, there's variations and there's but like, I mean, when you strip everything away, like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I majored in history and the sociological aspect has always really fascinated me where, you know, you can go back to Egypt, you know, 15,000 years ago and someone will still laugh at a fart joke, you know, type, like, you know, just like, it's, it's still like people like they're, when you strip away, you know, uh, cultural norms and traditions and, uh, social expectations, you, I think you, I think you end up, what you're left with is just, you end up just getting a, you end up just getting that laugh and, and you know, in, enjoys, enjoys company. And, uh, you know, that's just like what you were saying, Jen, with, uh, you, you have people that have, you know, as far, as long as, as far as Americans are concerned, they have nothing. I mean, when we were there, Madagascar was the uh, the seventh poorest country uh, in the world. So I don't know, I don't know where how often that moves around, but uh, you know, that's that's it's deep down there in the in the developed world. And I mean, you have people that just they just you know they live off of twenty five cents you know a day. But um, I like I remember talking to someone and them saying. Uh, they, uh, you know, I, I say, okay, well, you have five, you know, on this table that you're selling, you have five, five tomatoes and and six cloves of garlic, you know, or heads of garlic. You know, what happens when you, what happens when you sell all this stuff? Like, what happens when you sell it early? Do you have other stuff that you sell? Like, no, I'm done. That's when I'm done. And then I just go hang out with my friends or with my family or something. And I was like, oh wow, it's amazing. And you go and see, and you have. You you have you know high to do metropolitan uh, you know Malagasy people who are wearing nice suits and driving around in their cars and you know but like ultimately you know they're still I don't know everyone everyone there is still a product of their uh, of their upbringing and uh, uh, you know of the area that they were born in and raised in and I just I just I just saw so many similarities with. You know, someone would say something and I would say, well, you said that in a different language and in, in like in an accent. And but it just it just sounded exactly the same as what like my my dad said to me once or like my, my best friend or something. It just I remember seeing a lot of, you know, everything about that place is different than what I was used to. But I remember the people having uh, seeing a lot of similarities with the people. And that was kind of an eye opener for me, just realizing that, you know, you just it's difficult to to look past, you know, what people are wearing and what what type of food they're eating and um, you know, if they're washing their clothes in a in a in a, <laughs> in a poop river. <laughs> you know. But uh it please there there are absolutely horrible people anywhere you go. But there's there's also just absolutely wonderful people anywhere you go. And I think that's just 
you know, Peace Corps really helped me and all the people that I knew there, you know, it really, it just really helps you open yourself up to just seeing that and look at people. Mm-hmm. I, I could not agree more. Well, I've had a great time listening to your guys' stories, you know, two people that met in Peace Corps that had very different Peace Corps experiences, because as the three of us know that each one's service is unique and different. Uh, and it's it's been been great hearing your stories and, and learning a little bit about your service. Before we go, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast? Um, uh, well, I just I actually I just it, I, if I could make a plug to one of your previous episodes, <laughs> you're a uh, you're, yeah yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't object, <laughs> um, I I thought uh, I thought your ultimate Peace Corps packing, you know, list episode was, was pretty great. When you said Peace Corps provides, it's like, oh, amen. Cause it will. <laughs> Cause I, I remember thinking like my, uh, my family, they were pretty supportive of me leaving, but when they found out Madagascar, they were just like, what are you going to, what does two years of sunscreen look like? Mm-hmm. like? Don't worry. I'm pretty sure they'll give me that. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember that being a huge thing. Um, like that's, that's never something that someone's ever going to pack the best stuff for, but I think that's always, uh, I think that's, uh, I, I, I remember I listened to that episode and I thought that that was, uh, that was really solid. Like, you know, the perfect advice to give someone for packing isn't, you know, bring this much toothpaste and bring these types of clothes. It's more of, it's like the best advice is just to tell them, you know, don't worry about this. It's going to like, you know, like clothes, your clothes will wear out. You can get clothes there. It's fine. You know, or don't worry about this. You can get this there. It's fine. You know, so I, I thought that was a, I thought that was actually a really insightful uh, episode. I really liked that. Uh, well, well, thank you. That was one of my my little short episodes that I was experiencing experimenting with last month. I was doing maybe it was May. Yeah, I was uh, I was doing a, an additional Friday episode of sort of mm-hmm. me doing a, a monologue and tackling a subject that I I've been meaning to to start up again. So it's uh, good to know that you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Because that was something that that gave me stress to no end was packing <laughs> stuff, and uh, and then you know you're there for three months and you realize why did I bring half this crap? <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't I don't need any of this stuff. Like most of it's yeah. uh, it's either completely impractical or it's going to break within a year. So yeah. what's the point? Yeah, the rats are going to get to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Jennifer, do you have anything else you would like to add? I would just say if, if any listeners are wondering if they should go, just, just go, just do it. Um, I, I think of all of the things that you feel hesitant about, um, Peace Corps will, you'll gain so much more from it. I mean, it will be a huge transformative learning experience. Um, and you'll go through hardships, but I think learning about what you're capable of, like I always, I felt like I was, I was good going in there. I, I knew what I was good at. I felt but I felt like I was able to just grow so much more and learn so much more about like what I could do. And it was amazing. And I felt like I had so many memories that like when I still think about some of my best memories, it's still Peace Corps. Um, and so for anyone who's just, who's not sure, I, I take the leap. Like I, you won't regret it. Yeah. I definitely agree. Well, as I said, I've enjoyed taking some time to to get to know your service. 
to learn a little bit about Madagascar, the culture, and the experiences that you guys have had. And I think the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast will enjoy uh, your stories as much as I did. So thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was great. We appreciate it. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Core Story podcast. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, noticed, but I've been changing up how I do the titles for the episodes. Rather than just having uh, the boring what episode number it is, I, I try to, you know, sort of give you a brief description of what's going on. And I had a lot of fun picking the name for this episode, as one could imagine. Uh, so let me know what you think of this episode and other episodes of the My Peace Core Story podcast over at MyPeaceCoreStory.com. And do not forget to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen to so you get a new episode every single Tuesday when I release them. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? <laughs>